Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel, and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. LAist Studios. Until a few years ago, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, had an aircraft called the KC-135. It's a big, four-engine military jet used to study microgravity. A typical flight, about two to three hours, flies a route of 30 to 40 parabolic arcs. It's like a roller coaster. You go up, 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 smashed against the floor by about twice the force of gravity. Then you go down, 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 floating in free fall. Each arc has 20 to 25 seconds of quote-unquote zero gravity. When passengers experience how it feels to be in outer space, Almost nobody at the Johnson Space Center called the plane the KC-135. Ever since the Mercury program, astronauts have been calling it the, quote, vomit comet. Anyway, in 2001, I went to Houston for a week of physiological flight training that would culminate in a flight on this KC-135. I was invited to fly as a journalist on a student research flight with dancers who were studying conservation of angular momentum, a very fancy pretext to choreograph a dance in microgravity. I assumed the students would float gleefully around the padded cabin while I would be lashed to a seat in the back throwing up. But here's the thing. We took off, got ready for the first parabola, went up, 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 then crested and went down. 30 times, and I didn't get sick, not once. Instead, I felt inexplicable joy. I was in microgravity. I did triple somersaults. Anyone who knows me knows this is not the kind of thing I would likely say, but as I was floating around, I kept thinking, I feel as if I'm being held in the palm of God. Back on the ground, held in the palm of God, stayed with me. My awareness of the world and its interconnectedness intensified. I felt transformed. You know, early in the history of science, the mystical and the scientific were not rigorously segregated. Sir Isaac Newton was obsessed with alchemy. Galileo practiced astrology. Alfred Wallace, who helped Charles Darwin formulate natural selection, believed he could communicate with spirits. Then there's Jack Parsons, co-founder of Aerojet, regarded by some as a father of modern rocketry and self-proclaimed antichrist. I'm M.G. Lord. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Jack Parsons. So before he starts calling himself the Antichrist, before he becomes known both through his achievements in rocketry and for hosting some of Southern California's wildest orgies, Parsons is just another kid from Pasadena. Admittedly, at the start, quite a wealthy one. Jack Parsons was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons, was his original name, same name as his father. That's Justin Chapman, a journalist based in Pasadena. Chapman wrote a three-part series on Jack Parsons to commemorate the 70th anniversary of his death. His dad was not a good dude and cheated on his mom with prostitutes. And so his uh, mother, Ruth, changed his name to John Parsons with the nickname Jack Parsons. And they moved in with her parents to a mansion on South Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena, known as Millionaire's Row, with lots of stately mansions and big estates. And her parents were really wealthy up until the stock market crash of 1929. As a boy, Parsons had long hair and a round face. His fancy clothes and pretentious English accent, perhaps something he got from talking to his servants at home, set him apart from the other kids in school. One of Parsons' closest childhood friends was Ed Foreman, even though the two of them grew up in separate worlds. Jack Parsons was rich where the other students weren't. He also dressed nicely as a child and throughout his life he was always dressed in suits. So that made him stand out and and get picked on by uh, bullies and, and other kids. And actually that's how he and Ed Foreman became friends, is that Ed Foreman stuck up for him and sort of saved him in a couple of situations. Parsons' life radically changed in 1929, at the start of the Great Depression. His family lost its wealth, and within two years, his grandfather died. Parsons, now the sole male breadwinner, took a job at the Hercules Powder Company, where he became an explosives expert. He hoped to get a degree in chemistry and physics at Pasadena Junior College, but a lack of funds forced him to drop out after one term. He, you know, was uneducated in that sense, but had a brilliant mind that was able to think outside the box and come up with these new fuels and ways of, of doing rocketry. He wanted to get uh, an education, ultimately didn't need it to accomplish what he did. So, as we learned in an earlier episode, the Suicide Squad, Parsons and Foreman, Frank Molina, Chen Chu Shen, find success selling specialized rockets, JADOs, to the U.S. military for the war effort. But the solid fuel JADOs are still having issues. The powder can't withstand large changes in temperature. The military sees this as something of a design flaw and would prefer a fuel source that won't blow up unpredictably. Parsons tries different mixtures of chemicals, but to no avail. Then, 
a breakthrough. As the story goes, one day Parsons watches workers spread black asphalt on a roof, and an epiphany strikes. Why not use asphalt instead of powder? Suddenly, hundreds of years of rocketry are turned upside down. Safer to handle, easy to store, much easier to use. An entirely new category of rocket fuel is invented. The formula that Jack Parsons and Frank Molina developed is still used uh, in nuclear missiles and the, the space shuttle and everything we've used to get into space. That discovery, in addition to eventually launching the U.S. rocketry program, also led to the success of Aerojet. So rocketry was a passion for Parsons, but I don't know that it was the prevailing passion in his life, because from a very early age, Parsons was also fascinated by the occult. The occult, broadly speaking, means things that are supernatural, outside the realm of science. It can mean magic or witchcraft or just garden-variety mysticism. In the 1920s, when Parsons was growing up, the occult was frequently tied to, quote, spiritualism. People attended seances to supposedly speak to people who had died. Emphasis on supposedly. And Los Angeles itself was becoming a hub for alternative spirituality, especially among the Hollywood film community, where some actors regularly consulted astrologers about their careers. Here's Justin Chapman again. It was sort of a transitional period, early 20th century, where, you know, the stronghold of religion was waning a little bit with evolution, different scientific advances that Einstein made and others, and there was a lot of pseudoscience at the time. In the case of Parsons, it's kind of perfect timing. He's an only child, brilliant and intuitive, somewhat handsome, but also frequently lonely. Foreman was a sidekick, a brother of sorts. What Parsons seems to miss most in his life is a father figure, until he encounters hedonist and occultist Alistair Crowley. And that's how Parsons becomes the, quote, most valued member of a mysterious new religion. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Lillian Wonderman, Frank Molina's first wife, met Jack Parsons and his wife Helen Northrup through Molina's work at Aerojet. They often invited her over to their house to listen to records and then to the desert for camping. There, she got a feeling that Jack and Helen weren't like the other buttoned-up residents of Pasadena. Here's Wonderman recounting that story to me when I interviewed her on December 22, 1999. All of a sudden, these people are screaming, pan, pan, yo, pan, pan, out in the middle of the desert at the moon. And I'm thinking, geez, something really weird is going on. 
you know, what is this? And Jack is talking to me about a man named Crowley and his poetry. That man Jack's talking about is Alistair Crowley, a cultist, poet, and founder of the Church of Thelema. He was called the wickedest man in the world in the British tabloids. Pasadena journalist Justin Chapman again. He was into sex magic and black magic, believed that people should be able to do whatever they wanted. But he was also a big father figure for Jack Parsons. He was sort of his mentor, his spiritual mentor over a number of years. Crowley is a bisexual, bohemian, heroin addict, also a misogynist and racist by anybody's standards. Yet Crowley at that time was a major influence on Western counterculture, and he became a major, albeit remote, influence on Parsons. We didn't find any evidence that the two of them ever met in person, but Parsons poured over Crowley's work, and the two of them corresponded for years. Still, when Lillian found out Parsons was a fan of Crowley, she didn't think much about it until Parsons and his wife, Helen, invited her to a party in Los Angeles around 1940. She went there without her husband. The party in Los Angeles was the one that finally told me that this guy was really off on some trip that I didn't understand at all. You had women dressed in diaphanous things, you know, with everything showing and... uh, There were women dancing around in almost no clothes. And Lillian says that at the center of the room were two coffins. Was there a mass or did you just... Well, there was a service. There were readings, you know, of some kind, and there was incense flowing. There were candles, but somebody came out of the coffin and started dancing. And then it became quite clear to me that there were real sexual goings-ons here that I was not... um, I didn't know what the hell it was. I went to Frank when he got home and I said, listen, do you have any idea what what your friend Jack is into here? (laughs) And I told him, thinking he would be shocked. And he says, oh yeah, well, leave him alone. That's him. He's, uh, He's like that. To understand what the hell Lillian witnessed, here are the basics. In the early 1900s, Parsons' idol, Alistair Crowley, started a religion called Thelema, anointing himself as a prophet. They have a mystical order they call the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. And by the 1920s and 30s, that religion was spreading, including to greater Los Angeles. Crowley's got a representative there who oversees the OTO's business at the Agape Lodge, located at that point in Hollywood. Now it's 1939. The lodge has a weekly ceremony open to the public called a Gnostic Mass. A 25-year-old Parsons and his wife Helen start attending meetings regularly. The OTO's ceremony, its Gnostic Mass, is a pagan twist on a Catholic communion. You accept the body of Jesus Christ in the form of a wafer of some sort. You drink a sip of wine that stands in for his blood. But there's one major difference. You're doing this in front of a naked woman. I mean, there are plenty of other things that happen. You can find versions of the ceremony on YouTube. But one of the big questions I have is why? The OTO's central belief is do what thou wilt. Essentially, people should be able to do whatever they want. 
in addition to political freedom and spiritual freedom, it was also a proponent of sexual freedom and breaking taboos, mostly around sex. And so they use sex magic to do that, which is using sexual intercourse and, and orgasm in rituals to harness energy towards a specific goal whether that's summoning some being or trying to have some outcome in your life. A lot of it is members-only kind of information. You know, there was sharing of partners, there's polygamy, there's homosexuality, there's, there's all these different just taboo-breaking uh, sexual activities. OTO allowed Parsons the freedom to explore in ways that he felt society was holding him back. He wanted to be able to have different partners and explore different things that weren't typically allowed in 1930s, 1940s America. For Parsons, his occult practices and his rocketry experiments are two sides of the same coin. It's about discovery. It's about transcending the norms of the day. Unfortunately for Parsons, it becomes tricky to balance his passion for both. Jack Parsons essentially lived a, a double life, and they would seem like separate urges, but really I think they were both related to his need, really, to expand human consciousness, expand humans' physical reach into space. And I think he probably didn't see it as double life. He probably saw it as uh, the, his interests as related, especially early on when rocketry was not considered legitimate science. It was considered uh, just the stuff of science fiction novels. But it was these two things that led him to contribute to science in such a meaningful way. Around the time the squad has success with Jados, a rift develops between Parsons and Molina. It's November 1941. One of Galsett's employees, a night watchman hired on Parsons' recommendation, gets drunk. He steals a car at gunpoint. Here's Molina's version, as recorded in an interview for the JPL archives. Quote, They'd had a seance and so on. What all they were doing, I don't know. Anyway, he had a gun, and he found a car on the street where Parsons was living. And there was a couple necking in the car. He forced them out at the point of the gun, took the car, drove to Hollywood, evidently not quite knowing what he was going to do. And then... After a certain amount of time, he drove back to Pasadena. When he arrived at the flagpole by the Colorado Avenue Bridge, the police were waiting for him. I went to the jail to talk to the fellow and asked him what exactly made him do a stupid thing like that. Well, he was very vague, and I couldn't get anything out of Parsons or Foreman as to why this had happened. It then became quite evident that whatever it was that Parsons and Foreman were playing with had certain worrisome aspects, unquote. Well, worrisome proves to be more correct than Molina knows. Having an employee arrested for grand theft auto could threaten Gauss's contracts with the military, their prime customer. Molina found it difficult to trust Parsons after that, by 1942, Parsons and his wife Helen have moved to a mansion on South Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena. Pretty quickly, Parsons starts to buck the neighborhood's convention. 
He converts the estate into a boarding house. He only wants tenants, according to an ad in the newspaper, who are, quote, atheists, anarchists, or other exotic types, close quote. People call it the parsonage. On top of that, the OTO's lodge gets relocated to the property, and Smith, Parsons' mentor, lives on the grounds. They start throwing wild parties, that typical mix of sex, drugs, and pagan worship. Generally, he's doing these rituals. He and Ed Foreman are tinkering with explosives and and learning how to do those things. Doing drugs, uh, they they got into uh, morphine and peyote and cocaine, uh, so that became a big part of his his, his, uh, work activities as well. And trying to go above his pay grade in terms of these sex magic rituals. At one point, Parsons starts a magazine called Oriflem. The first issue includes a poem by Parsons that kind of sums up the period. I hate Don Quixote. I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never know sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain. In a letter to one of his friends in the OTO, Parsons writes, You know, I was an only and lonely child, and it is a fine thing to inherit such a large and splendid family. I never knew a father, and it is nice to have one now. Well, the large and splendid family isn't without its problems. For one thing, Parsons starts an affair with Betty, his wife's half-sister, who's 17 years old. According to Chapman, it actually started much earlier. A couple of years before he, they got involved with the OTO, because Helen became a member of the OTO as well as around the same time, Jack started an affair with her half-sister, younger sister, Betty, who she told her daughter um, before she died later in life that she was 13 at the time and he was uh, 25 or 27. Now, different sources assign Betty different ages. According to The Unknown God, Martin Starr's book about Aleister Crowley, Betty, just prior to her death, told her own daughter that she was 13 when the affair started. And that's what Justin said, too. But according to an interview with Betty earlier in life, she was 15. We know Parsons was born in 1914, Betty in 1924. No matter what, that's a 10-year age gap. Whatever Betty's age was, it was likely underage, perhaps significantly. And once again, we see Parsons being reckless, flouting rules and morals. That's his approach, right? On top of all the drugs, the demon summoning, he also keeps large barrels of gunpowder stored around the house. He loves experimenting with different chemicals without much worry for blowing things up. At work, at home, life is something to be toyed with. This is, of course, not without repercussions. To add to his complicated home life, Parsons soon must deal with an investigation of the parsonage. The well-to-do neighbors of South Orange Grove Avenue are fed up with the mayhem. They file numerous complaints. The police start poking around, including the FBI. 
And they're like, well, we, you know, we had, we had heard that it was a, a gathering of perverts over here. So that's how the, the neighbors looked at what was going on at the house. You know, this reports of a pregnant woman jumping over a huge fire during one of these rituals outside. Just lots of reports of, of orgies and, and parties and drugs. They called the police and the FBI on Jack Parsons a number of times, and they would come and investigate. And he'd tell them, hey, we're just a freedom-loving group, you know, studying philosophy and, and spirituality and, and or anti-fascist and anti-communist and uh, knew how to talk the cops out of taking any action, and they didn't. So Parsons gets away with his sex magic orgies for now. But the same wildness that drives him to experiment, that makes him the life of the party, is wearing on his Aerojet colleagues and his partners. Science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And maybe that's true. But my problem with Parsons' Satanism isn't the goofy sex rituals. It's the philosophy behind it. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's not about freedom or defying convention. It's about selfishness. It's the antithesis of someone like Frank Molina. Molina is high-minded, egalitarian. He hopes people could work together to create a better world. He wants to explore space for the benefit of humankind. Whereas Jack Parsons, no matter his scientific prowess, always seems to me like an insecure little boy out to conquer space just to prove he can. Here's the thing. My held-in-the-palm-of-God experience in that vomit comment was about feeling connected, being a part of something bigger than myself. It makes sense to me that so many people look up at the stars or look down at the Earth from space and come away with the desire to work together for the benefit of us all. What doesn't make sense to me is how someone has those experiences and selfishly decides, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And in the next episode, we'll hear how Parsons' philosophy affected one of the people he worked with. Barbara Canwright, a bright mathematician who made crucial contributions to the squad's Jado experiments. Canwright had personal experiences with Parsons that affected her so deeply that she refused to speak of them ever again. That's coming up next on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. 
Our website at Aleas.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Aleas Studios. The marketing team of Aleas Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Aleas Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.